This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We also have on the line today Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and Kara Marciscano, who's a, a Senior Analyst at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Kara and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services, Professor Siegel, is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's or affiliates. We're about to begin the second quarter earnings season, and you know everybody is with the shutdown getting ready for some bad numbers. Our guest, he doesn't believe it's going to be as bad as people are expecting. Uh, we're going to talk to him just about all his his ways of aggregating earnings in just a moment. Uh, but Professor Siegel, what's, uh, we had July fourth off last week. Uh, the trends you're focused on are virus related often. How are you seeing the trends there and, and your reaction to yeah. some of the way you look at it? Yeah, the trend is not good. The only, uh, the good thing, of course, was this news this morning on this uh, remdesivir trial. Very encouraging. Um, 62% reduction in deaths against standard care. 62% reduction in deaths against standard care. Um, this is higher than the 30% reduction that uh, dexamethasone achieved. Um, and, and by the way, I think it's the thing that's probably saving the market today because the, there's no question the virus trends do not look good um, at all. Uh, Texas, Florida, Arizona, even in, in California, I think we're getting that wave that swept through the Northeast um, is now sweeping through uh, the West. It's good to have treatments that are that seem to be more effective for those severe cases. Um, uh, and you know, right now we we have the uh, market uh, again. When there's good news about either the virus or treatments, uh, we get the we get the cyclical stocks like the Dow stocks outperforming Nasdaq. When there's bad news about about uh, the virus as there have been in the last uh, uh, week and week and a half, uh, we get definite per- outperformance by NASDAQ and the, and the tech. I mean, that's the way it's been going, actually, for the last three months. Um, and we'll continue to go, uh, I would say, going forward. Um, yeah, we are going to head into earnings season. I mean, we know that this, you know, it, it's going to be a bad quarter. Uh, estimates are this year, S&P earnings are down 20%. Um, I think, um, you know, what's this last quarter and this quarter are going to be really important in seeing whether that is true or not. But I've, I've always maintained what the progress against the virus and the trends of the virus infections is far more important uh, for um, the stock market. Uh, I do think there will be another round of liquidity um, injections uh 
fiscal injections, I should say. I think the Fed is mostly done. Fiscal injections, um, they're arguing exactly what type, but this is election year and it's coming up, and so we're we're going to get more fiscal stimulus, which I think is we're going to be very supportive. Very good. Um, any, uh, I know we have Lee Chen on the line. Lee Chen, any anything you're focused on on where the viruses trends have been happening? Hi, Professor. Um, I haven't um, focused as much. I think one thing that it's a little bit uh, ignored in the media is that um, if you look at geographically, uh, a few of the few of the states that's surging right now. Are mostly southern states, which has a lot of interactions with uh, Latin American countries, and broadly, if you look at you know the world as a whole, um, right now the southern uh, you know uh, uh, southern uh, South Americans are definitely American countries are definitely a hotspot, and because of the interaction you know U.S. we have with, I think. Uh, a lot of media talk is about, um, you know, people getting to work, causing it. I personally think um, the other factor is also very important because there's just so much interaction with, uh, you know, the uh, Latin American countries and the people movement um, is is uh, is very hard, uh, you know, to 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 say, uh, you know, stop right away. So I I think it's it's. Um, uh, not necessarily solely caused by getting back to work. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it is hitting the Latino and Hispanic communities hard. It did hit them hard in the Northeast. And the minority uh, minorities have been getting, getting it worse. Um, uh, and it seems to be that trend also in Texas, Arizona, and as you say, Florida, uh, Dade County, particularly um, Houston, is the hotbed in Texas. Um, we'll see what happens. The good, the good thing again is we know better how to treat them. We do have some therapeutics. Um, uh, continuing uh, news on on, on 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 vaccines. It was particularly last week we had Pfizer uh, saying that it is in stage three trials. Um, there's uh, this is again very very good news. It's discouraging when you see those jump in cases, um, but looking further ahead, the developments on control of this virus are, are not discouraging at all, and I, actually I would, I would call them. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I agree with Professor. Yeah, no, I know the professor was saying last week, uh, at any time he gave us some positive news, uh, he was getting sort of hate mail on, on the response. And so now it sounds like uh, the, the last week it, it's, it's given him a little bit more negative tone. But, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the trend in the death rates was something that he was finding very encouraging in terms of uh, getting death rates towards the, the lows, even though cases were, were coming yeah. back up. And it's actually good news in the sense that if it's only a few states, then it's much easier. I, I think uh, there, if it's you know, completely national, then it's much harder. But if, if you know, if it's a hotspot like in New York or in New Jersey, now if you look, you know, New York, the 24-day new cases of the past two weeks, the growth rate is only 2.1%. So this means it can be controlled. It's just, you know, in the midst of it, it seems very scary. But, you know, um, usually, almost every outbreak has this, you know, two-week run-up and run-down. Professor, one, I know we got you back uh, right after you jumped yeah. off there for a second, but you know, I, Harvard announced uh, cl- plans to uh, remote remote teaching. You hear anything from yeah. Penn? What do you see of the? Yeah. Uh, you hear Trump um, so, talk about schools? Um, 
you know, basically professors have a choice. Uh, if the class is over, I think it's 48, then you've got to do it remotely because they don't have classrooms available to social distance to allow for the class. If the classroom, if the class size is smaller, they let the, the professor make the choice about whether he or she wants the the Zoom or or not. Um, it can a part of your lecture can be pre-recorded and then get online for question and answers. It cannot everything be pre-recorded. There has to be some period of of live interaction uh, with the faculties. Of course, we're also, as you know, faced with um, uh, the ICE's new. Uh, um, uh, it's actually not a new edict. It's interesting um, that uh, foreign students, uh, international students, cannot take 100% online. My understanding is actually that ruling was put in effect many years ago to prevent false and uh, fraudulent applications for visas of, of people that were only taking online as a way to get in the United States. Uh, now, of course, since uh, it it. It, it would be a great impediment, and, and, and I hope something will be worked out on that front. But this is election year, uh, so there, there, that, that's, you know, who knows where, where that will fall. We've been asked to try to arrange personal courses um, where we would be able to, uh, you know, meet with some of these foreign students, um, not uh, completely online in order to have them certified as a bona fide uh, visa uh, students or not. So that's that's the current discussion <laughs> happening from, from Wharton. Yeah. Very good. If I may add, uh, because I was an international student myself, that rule is indeed, um, you know, mainly put in to prevent, uh, you know, to, to prevent a harm in, in the early years. So yeah. because they're all and only uh, Right. It was. It was. It wasn't a, a new rule. It was a rule that they now said we're going to enforce. Uh, you know, I think there should have been some saying, "Hey, the world has changed. These people are here, and we're taking courses, and then they weren't involved in the university, like University of Phoenix, which is all online, and that you know allows me to get a visa." And that was what they were trying to prevent. And you know, I uh, and, and so that that is the the current. Um, uh, uh, situation, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting as when the fall semester starts um, around Labor Day <laughs> on how how this all goes. Let, let me bring in our guest, that, Professor. Thank you so much for some comments to start the show here. Thank you very much. We're going to be talking with David Trainer, founder and CEO of New Constructs, which provides stock and ETF recommendations to its clients. They they have something called the Robo Analyst that they're looking through all the filing systematically, getting better measures of earnings. David, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit. Um, I, so tell us, um, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, New Constructs, and you have a measure of core earnings. Maybe sort of define um, what you guys are trying to do, how you define core earnings uh, before we get into like what those numbers say versus what how people standardly look at earnings. Yeah, sorry to be a little bit late to the party. I, I love the discussion about kind of what's going on with earnings because you know our core earnings is effectively a cleaner measure than what you get from anyone else, uh, and uh, its superiority or its better cleanliness has been proven in a recent paper from Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan. And where the S&P operating earnings, as the professor said, are showing a 20% decline, we're showing only a 3% decline. And that's because there's just so many unusual charges 
related to COVID that are non-normal that uh, adulterate the sort of normal operating performance of the business that core earnings and analyst estimates are supposed to provide. We think the problem is going to get worse because not only do you have a lot of unusual stuff related to COVID, but we're going to see the kitchen sink effect, we believe, in the second quarter. Kitchen sink effect being where companies take advantage of bad times to throw all the bad write-downs and expenses they can into the numbers. So as to clean the books, when the markets get back to good times and they can do everything they can to beat the number. So our, our, our firm focuses on giving investors really a, a new paradigm in the accuracy of profitability. And coupled with that is, is a, a new level of transparency into exactly how we do our calculations. We have an unprecedented level of granularity and transparency into what's being done um, to arrive at a cleaner number. Uh, you don't just have to trust the numbers from CompuStat or Bloomberg or Refinitiv and, you know, because um, it's impossible to, to recreate and understand what they're doing. We know because the, the Harvard, Harvard Business School professors have tried. And so we're, we're just more granularity, more transparency and a better number, all enabled by robo-analyst technology. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about you know gap earnings and the difference between everybody. Gap is what's commonly reported uh, on, on the balance sheets and, and income statements, and then you've got operating earnings from S and P. And and you guys are trying to clean it up even further. And and what your one of the pieces you just wrote about uh, don't fret two two Q earnings uh, the S and P can continue to rise says that there's about a forty five cents out of every dollar of unusual gains and losses that. Uh, that the analysts are, are missing. That's right. You know, I mean, surprise, surprise, you know, Wall Street analysts aren't reading footnotes and doing all that diligence. Um, there's a conflict there, right? I mean, their firms only make money if the companies they write about like them and give them banking and trading business. Uh, so, uh, look, that's been around forever. I remember early in my career, you know, as a Wall Street sell side analyst realizing, oh, yeah, I see uh, the bankers can find a ratio to make any deal look good. That's, you know, that's where the bread is buttered. So New Constructs is a unique firm. We kind of stepped outside of that circle and we're focused on really democratizing and, and scaling access to really high quality research so that investors can make more informed decisions. And Jeremy, yeah, you're right. Like gap numbers, everybody knows that gap numbers have had issues, but no one's really been able to systematically prove that the legacy data providers have issues. As you said, 45 cents on every dollar of, uh, of adjustments we're, we're making, they are missing. And, um, you know, there's never been a database like ours that's allowed either, you know, Harvard Business School, MIT Sloan, Ernst & Young also wrote a paper proving our data superior. These firms would not have risked their reputation to write papers if they could not unequivocally prove our data is better. And, it, and it's important to point out that they can only do that because these guys can only prove our data is unequivocally better because everything is traceable and audible back to the source and reconcilable back to all of our calculations. You can't do that with any of the legacy data providers. And I maintain they don't want you to do that work because they don't want you to see the truth behind the numbers. They don't want you to see how the sausage is made. They would rather you just be forced to trust the number because that's what everyone else is using and go about doing the business in the way they've done it for many years. Uh, and we're respectively a, a paradigm shift driven by technology to give people new, cleaner, better numbers with more granularity. 
Now, Wisdom Tree has licensed some of your earnings figures for some of our earnings indexes. Uh, and I brought Kara Marciscano on, on my team. She's a senior analyst, works a lot with your data. Uh, maybe I won't bring Kara into the conversation just to sort of to, to see what's on her mind. She's done some work her about, but care anything for David on the distortions in, in earnings that, that you're sort of looking at right now? Sure. So when I think about, you know, some of the headlines that have grabbed investors' attentions and our attentions in the first half of the year, you know, energy companies have been very popular headlines, you know, having oil prices falling and seeing write downs in assets. We've seen a lot of mega cap energy names and, you know, even small cap energy names writing down the value of their assets. And that's something that, you know, most investors probably wouldn't catch because that's buried into the footnotes. But you guys have this incredible technology that can, you know, take the monotony out of going through every single 10Q or 10K um, and automatically flag where you see a write down in a financial filing. I'm just curious how new contracts would think about treating some of those energy asset write downs that we've seen come in in the past couple months. Uh, those would be unusual items, and that, that's a big part of why our operating earnings or our core earnings number for the S&P is only down 3% when uh, S&P's operating earnings is showing a 20% decline. So, you know, you know these are unusual charges, uh, just in the same way that negative oil was an unusual sort of short-term phenomenon. Um, you know, prices are already back up to closer to normal levels, um, and... We've been really bullish, actually, on, on the refiners and the more integrated oil firms, you know, firms that aren't necessarily purely dependent on making a profit on the price of oil. They're more a middleman that takes it, buys the oil, whatever price it is, and they sell it later at a premium. We think the, like, the, the demand for fuel is going to come back. Uh, and we think in general, like markets are suffering from this, this sort of ingrained human behavioral sort of uh, bias toward extrapolating the current events, the recent events, the recency bias, the representative bias, where what's more recent and what seems important is extrapolated almost into perpetuity into the future. Uh, things are bad now. They're not going to be this bad forever. The economy will recover. We're finding, we're making progress on a vaccine at all times. Uh, and once we get back to normal, we're going to look back at this time and think, oh, what a great buying opportunity because there's all this noise. In the meantime, the noise kind of overwhelms us. And I think the good thing about our technology, and Kara, thank you for the compliments before, the great thing about our technology is it, it, it equips investors to make more informed decisions. We're going to cut that noise out for them. It's important to note that Wall Street wants the noise. The more churn, the more you sell on the downside, the more you buy on the upside, they're making money either way. And they have all these big hedge funds. They've got all kinds of algorithms that take advantage of these, move, these larger movements up and down. They need that churn. You know, COVID is like chum in the waters for these hedge fund sharks. And, um, you know, the chum is the individual investor, investor trading a lot of times. And so we're cleaning out the noise, and that's, that's good for investors, not necessarily good for Wall Street. But I believe it's, it's an inevitable trend in the progress of technology and transparency. I think transparency and technology move in one direction, which is making the world a better place for the most part, right? And uh, new constructs are just kind of part of that process. 
Now, Kara's done some work on the small cap side, uh, David. It's sort of interesting. You know, every, a lot of people had tracked the S&P 500's earnings estimates, and, and there's sort of a, some memes on, on Twitter going around that the small caps are at all-time expensive valuations. But part of it is just how unprofitable small caps are uh, in general, and particularly the Russell 2000. But, uh, Kara, do you want to talk through when you looked at gap earnings versus, say, sort of traditional operating earnings, as we've been talking about, and then the core earnings, how that looks for something like the S&P 600 and the different P.E. ratios you might get uh, looking at these different metrics? Yeah. So we looked at a measure of earnings at a per share level for the S&P 600 small uh, cap index. And if you look at an S&P EPS number for the index and a gap EPS number for the index, you're going to get an EPS number of around negative $30. That's a jarring number. And then if we use the new contracts data set, we're actually getting a number that's close to, you know, all the way on the opposite side of the spectrum, a positive $30 number. And then when we drill down into, you know, what could be driving that, there's about 10% of the S&P 600 index that is gap unprofitable, but profitable um, from a core perspective. So that obviously has a big impact on valuation. So if you're looking at something, um, based on gap PE, you're going to get a PE of around negative 27 times. If you're looking at it on an operating basis, you'll get a negative gap PE of around negative 26 times. And then on core PE, you're going to get a PE of 28 times. You can't really do anything with those negative PEs, obviously. Um, But a core PE of 28 times is something you can work with. And if we compare that to a core PE from an alternative data set, the market actually looks really overvalued. It's at 43 times. um, And the earnings are just are just completely understated unless you're controlling for some of those volatile items that new construct does um, so easily. And I think, you know, alluding to your point before, how you're sort of just cleaning up the data. If you just take out so of that 10% of the universe, that's gap negative, but core positive, around 1.5% of those companies are energy companies. And obviously we're seeing write downs right now, so that can lead to those gap negative numbers. But if we're using a new core, uh, a new contracts core data set, you're not gonna necessarily have that swing down with the write down and the swing up when they write back up those assets. And you're just looking for a data set that's you know, more consistent quarter over quarter and less volatile. So when you were alluding to you know, how your data is just cleaner and less volatile over time. I think that's what led you to call the the um, that the market was oversold in March, which is huge. I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. And then to have that call at that point in March that the market was oversold and then today to come out and say the market still looks undervalued relative to what we're seeing from S&P and, and from a gap perspective is really important. Yeah, Kara, I, I love the PE talk because, you know, for all the uh, analysis of, of earnings at the end of the day, you know, it's most useful when it helps us give, gives us insight into valuation. And uh, yeah, and, and I love the small cap work you've, you've done. We haven't done that that on our side yet, so I can't wait to talk to you more about that. Uh, and, and But on the PE side, in our report, um, and I, I put it into the Twitter um conversation today, Jeremy, so people can take a look. But figure four shows that during the financial crisis, the the PE for based on S&P's operating earnings is like 
it's just like what um, Kara said. It's like completely opposite from where ours ours is. And when you look at where our PE bottomed and where the market bottomed, I mean, we were an extremely good leading indicator for the market rebound in the financial crisis. And I think the same thing is going to be true about March. Um, there's a little bit more of a, of a I think, delayed um, pressure and ceiling in the market because the financial crisis is sort of a one-time thing. We didn't have, you know, we had the sovereign debt thing come on a little bit later, but it was not as much of a big deal. Whereas COVID, I think, is really kind of shaking people's confidence because um, anyway, the media is fanning the flames, et cetera. You know, the second wave is not never going to ever be as bad as the first wave. But that said, yes, the, the, the read you can get with a P.E. ratio and the read you can get on valuation with a more normal, clean number is going to be way better than the noisy number. Let me introduce our guests here. We have David Trainer, CEO of New Constructs, Kara Marciscano of Senior Analyst at Wisdom Tree. David, the um, when you, you one of the things that you guys do on your system, and you sort of mentioned liking energy, some of the energy assets because of valuations and 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 your guys read through. You guys have you know not just these earnings figures, but you do try to aggregate them into valuations and how what parts of the market you see them are attractive and not any other places you you want to highlight about things that your system are identifying as you know attractive given you know all the run up that we, that we've had recently. Our, our our kind of focus here these days has, has been, you know, to say, look, we think the big uh, ETFs and indexes are really fully valued. I think going forward, you're going to see people selling some of these big tech names uh, to graze cash, to buy the stocks that have not participated in what I would call the ETF melt-up. And the ETF melt-up is really a function of a, how crowded the passive index investing strategy has become. Right, people just throw it into these indices. These indices effectively blindly allocate money to the companies that have had a big uh, weighting in the index, and so they get a disproportionate amount of inflows into the market, and they just keep going up. And and so I think there's maybe even a little bit of a bubble there, um, if for no other reason that this money is being allocated for non-fundamental reasons, just for money flow reasons, and it's left a lot of individual stocks uh, really in the in the cold, and as an opportunity for investors to pick up that are super cheap. Um, these A lot of these are best-in-class businesses, uh, banks and uh, firms in the restaurant business, insurance companies, industrials. We've got a, a whole variety of them on our site. We've pointed out that these are stocks playing, trading at all-time historical lows, and we expect they're going to come out of this stronger than we went into it because as the strongest business going into this dip, they're going to take market share from the firms that don't make it out. So um, that's been our take, is, is that the passive investing strategy is really sort of, we think the pendulum has swung a little too far, and there's a big opportunity. You know, to take a cleaner, you know, if you take a, a sharper focus, a sharper pencil to understanding the profitability of these individual businesses, you can really pick up some great opportunities, great value opportunities. Yeah, I know one of the, the, the big narratives has been the uh, on, on Twitter, especially the Davy J trader on the airlines versus sort of Buffett on airlines. Any, I know you, one of the pieces you wrote talked about, you know, specific airline. I don't know if you want to go into that or not, but do you, do you, any, do you have a view on, on at least one airline that's uh, more, more different than Buffett? Yeah, yeah, no, we, we, in fact, that was, that was the, um, the title of our, of our piece on Southwest Airlines. I wasn't sure if we were allowed to talk about specific specific stocks on the show, but yeah, we, um, Buffett is short sight on the airlines. Love is a, a steal at this price. And so that 
we wrote that in, in um, early May. And, uh, you know, our thesis is really, look, the stock price at 27 bucks is implying profits will, will in, in 10 years not be as high as they were in 2014. So a permanent significant reduction in the profitability of the business that the, the, air, the, the airline business doesn't recover in 10 years is what's priced in at 37, sorry, 27 uh, when we wrote the report. And, and that thesis has, has worked even after the sort of second wave issues we've seen. And, and look, Southwest Airlines is the one airline that has been the most profitable and the most operationally uh, efficient. And they're going to come out of this. They're going to take share while these other guys struggle with potential bankruptcy threat, uh, et cetera. And, and I just I just don't see that we as humans are going to forever give up um, airline travel as significantly as the market implies with that really depressed valuation. Yeah, always good to hear different views on, on, on where people are focused. Um, any other things you would you would highlight big big focus points for new constructs where you're you're taking research or other focus points for for the markets? Uh, yeah, no, we, we're we're excited for for two uh, two cool new features um, that we're going to be rolling out soon. We're going to be doing fix, fixed income or credit ratings uh, that we think that will be really helpful to a lot of our existing clients and partners to provide some additional perspective and coverage on on fixed income securities for uh, close to three thousand companies. Uh, we're ex- we're excited about that, uh, as well as expanding our coverage on stocks more to international, so we're not just um, focused on the U.S. Um, and and we're looking forward to seeing this paper from Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan continue to to uh, get a lot of traction in the marketplace and maybe someday be in a, in a peer-reviewed journal um, so that even more people can be aware that there's a new, better technology for measuring earnings. No, this is uh, this has definitely been you know one of the topics. I mean, we we people were just saying you can't you can't the earnings don't matter because it's sort of backwards looking. Like Professor Siegel's even been saying. You know, and he focused on earnings a lot. That you know, it's it's all sort of forward-looking virus indicators. Any sort of closing thoughts on what you think this upcoming second quarter earnings season is going to look like? Things to be watching for as, as you guys look, scour the footnotes. Any things that that jumps out as as where people should be paying extra attention to? Oh yeah. So talking about write downs, Kara. Right, we've seen that in even in one even in the first quarter earnings. We're seeing more write-downs per share than we've ever seen in any fiscal year, right? Um, so, you know, just in the first quarter, and we think the second quarter is going to be worse. Uh, the, 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 the Wall Street numbers, the consensus are um, going to be – it's going to be a bloodbath, but everybody knows it's noise. Uh, our numbers are already clean for that. So, And you can see over time through all the dips, um, the tech bubble and the financial crisis – our core earnings number is a whole lot more steady, and it's going to be a lot steady this time around, too. And we just hope that investors can kind of you know, buckle in and make it through this volatility with, you know, using our core earnings as a ballast uh, to see through it. But, yeah, it's going to be ugly, Jeremy. It's going to be really yeah. bad. If, we, if, if in the first quarter, which really only had about a month of the virus, we've already seen more write-downs than we had in entire fiscal years up to this point, uh, yeah, the second quarter is going to be, you know, it's going to be kitchen sink and a bunch of one-time COVID stuff. And, you know, that's why you hear people saying, yeah, we can't pay attention to the number. And, you know, why do we live in a world where 
our analyst community is so poor that we can't pay attention to the number because we know there's too much noise. Why not use a number that gets rid of the noise? Isn't that what the Wall Street analysts are supposed to do is give us a normal kind of core number? Anyway, it is, we're doing it. It is going to be interesting. expect them to do it. We're looking forward to checking back in when you get when we get the final read of uh, this next quarter. It'll be good to check back and and see how the how your guys read of the situation. Thanks so much for joining us for some commentary today. Thank you, Jeremy. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.